We turn to read in our Bibles now in the Word of God, and we turn to the 10th chapter of Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 10. We're going to read from verse 13 to verse 45, and it's page 1020, as you can see uh, in our church Bibles. So let's hear the Word of God as we continue through the Gospel of Mark. It's a longer reading than sometimes, because all of these points are very important. Verse 13. And they were bringing children to Jesus, that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, and he said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it is, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house, or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. 
And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What kind of people were the disciples of Jesus? How does Mark portray them? Were they really impressive guys? Were they the kind of people that you would meet and say, wow, these people just leave me feeling that I'm nothing. They're so able, they're so capable, they're so switched on. They've got everything going for them. Were they like that? No. They were what we might call a very motley crew. They were inconsistent. They were proud. They were careless. They were fearful. And all the rest of it. They were a snapshot. They were a cross-section of human society anywhere and everywhere, including right here this morning at Grove Chapel. But what Mark especially shows us in his Gospel account of Jesus is this. The disciples were very slow to learn, very slow to understand, very slow to get the message. And being a disciple of Jesus, it was true back then, 
And it's true today in 2019. This is true of being a disciple. It's a matter of unlearning as much as a matter of learning. You have to unlearn old things as well as learn new things. And anybody who's been any kind of teacher with any group of pupils or students any length of time will understand that. You have to unlearn in order then to learn. And in particular this. What kind of learning and unlearning are we talking about? We're talking about the unlearning and the learning of heart attitudes. What do I mean? The way we look at ourselves. The way we look at the world around us. The way we think about God. The way we think about each other. The way we think about our reputations. The way we think about what we do with our time. We need a makeover, a renewal of the mind, says Paul. We need a new attitude, a transformation of what's deep down inside us. And the reason that I read quite a long section from Mark chapter 10 is because there are three sections in verses 13 to 34 which really should have taught the disciples an important lesson in attitude. What are they? Well, first of all, we have Jesus saying to the disciples, you need to become like a little child. You need to have the attitude of one who is humble and ready to learn. You need to, as it were, shrink yourselves down. And then you'll be ready to learn what it is to be a follower of me. And then we have that rich young man, that rich young ruler, and his problem was that he he loved his wealth. He loved his stuff, he loved his property. And Jesus says it's very, very hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God because they're too in love with with what they have and what they own. And they've got to unlearn the love of riches. And then you have the third occasion is when Jesus says, for the third time in Mark's Gospel, listen, Peter, Simon, uh, Andrew, James, John, Thomas, Bartholomew, the rest of you, listen to me. I'm telling you for the third time, you haven't heard me so far, we're going to Jerusalem and there I'm going to suffer and be killed and then on the third day be raised from the dead. And they didn't get it. They didn't get it. But doesn't this seem a bit weird to you, to be honest, right? That after all of these lessons in Mark chapter 10, Along come James and John, striding confidently, no doubt, to go and see Jesus and say, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask. We want to sit either side of you on your throne in your glory. We want to be in the elevated places, in the top table, on the high seats. Matthew's Gospel is even more remarkable in that they get get mummy to come with them. And Mumsy has to say, Sir Jesus, will you do this for my my little boys? Don't they quite get it? Haven't they gauged the complexion of the verses that we have here in Mark chapter 10? Aren't Aren't they seeing there's a bit of a theme, a bit of a thread running through this? It's not about being great. 
back in chapter 9. You could have read this if we'd had time. There's an argument going on between the disciples. What's it about? They're having an argument about which of them is the greatest. And that really is the trigger that means that Jesus has to teach them all of these things in chapter 10 that we're seeing here. Now, they didn't understand. They didn't get it. Do you get it? Do I get it? Get what? The lesson of this passage. The message of servanthood. That servanthood is greatness in the kingdom of God. That's it. We come to verses 42 to 45 of chapter 10. And the first lesson we need to see is this in verse 42. In this world, in our world, greatness means lording it over people. Look at verse 42. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. What do rulers of the Gentiles do? Says Jesus. They love to be the top dog. They love to have people bowing and scraping beneath their feet. They love to be hero-worshipped. They love to be addressed by great swelling titles like great ruler, great leader, mighty one, even divine titles. You could think about the Roman emperors of the time. They were like that. Some of the emperors were given divine titles, Lord and God, some of them were called. Herod the Great was like that. The Pharaoh of Egypt earlier on had been like that. You, you bowed and you scraped and you lay prostrate on the ground when you were with these people. They loved to receive the adoration and adulation of the common people. They were a cut above everybody else. They never rolled up their sleeves and got down with the masses, as it were. And it doesn't matter whether we're talking about then or now, whether we're talking about left wing or right wing or anything, anything else, that's the pattern. You could go to the court of Tsar Nicholas II, the last Romanov ruler of Russia in the early 20th century, and he was an autocratic ruler who loved people to bow and scrape. You could then go back to Russia 40 years later to the court of the Red Tsar, Joseph Stalin, the left-wing communist, and there'd be even more bowing and scraping and adulation and indeed terror of this ruler. And let me tell you this as well, which is very, very tragic. Rulers in the professing Christian church have sometimes been just the same. They love to lord it over people. Their great ones exercise authority over them. They love to be authoritarian rulers. They love to be carried aloft in some great, uh, some great litter and being clothed in robes and have people bowing as they go past. They love to wear the, uh, the robes and the mitres and all of these things. You think about some of the popes of the medieval period and cardinals like Cardinal Wolsey in England in Henry VIII's time. And they, they loved to receive the adoration and the worship and the applause of all the people around. It's what they lived for. There's a story from the very early church history of this country back in the 6th century when... Uh, Augustine of Canterbury, 
Augustine of Canterbury, had arrived in this country, and the King of Kent had been converted to the Roman Catholic faith. And this was the question, would the Celtic church, would the Christians in Britain who were Celtic from northern Britain, would they agree to, as it were, sign up to the, uh, the rule of the Church of Rome? And they had a discussion about this, and they said, well, how will we know whether this man sent from Rome is a genuine disciple of Jesus or not? How can we gauge whether this Augustine figure is a true follower and servant of God? This was their plan. When we walk into his room, let's see if he gets up out of his chair and walks over to us and greets us. And they went. What did Augustine do? He stayed sat down, and he treated them with disdain, and he despised them, and they had to bow and scrape to him. And the rest is so much history. But this is the attitude of the world, and it's the attitude of James and John that Jesus must correct. And let me say this, Isn't it your attitude and my attitude sometimes? Oh, I'd love people to pamper me. Oh, I'd love to sit down in a chair somewhere up there near that stained glass window and sit on an elevated platform. And Oh, I'd love people to come and wash my hands and my feet and bring me wonderful delicacies or whatever it might be. I'd, I'd love that everybody around me, you might think, would would treat me with tremendous reverence. Oh, I'd love to be, I'd love to be uh, popular and famous and have everybody running after me and to be adored by them all. Or even it can be like this, can't it? Children can be guilty of this, and so can adults. I, I feel entitled to something. I should be treated better than I am. I want to do what I want to do, and people should, should notice that. I, I want, I, I'm entitled to be uh, treated in a certain way. And this is an attitude that earns a strong rebuke from Jesus. It's an attitude that needs to be unlearned. In the world, greatness is lording, lording it over people. But secondly... In the church, greatness means servanthood. In the church of God, greatness is to be a servant. And Jesus teaches his disciples that everything needs to be turned upside down. The pyramid, with the big people at the top, needs to be turned the other way up. Look back at verse 31. Many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And the idea of some kind of pecking order, with rulers at the top, all being waited on, hand and foot, that is completely foreign to the mind of Jesus. Jesus has very much a group of people in mind as he says these sorts of things. And in Matthew 23, Jesus describes the attitude of the scribes and the Pharisees. And you remember these words, Matthew 23, verses 5 to 7. He says this, 
He says, look at the Pharisees. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries, they make these these boxes on their heads that contain little verses of Scripture. They make them broad, and they make the fringes of their clothes long. They they dress up to be seen. They love the places of honour at the feasts. They love the high tables, the elevated chairs, the high balconies. And they love greetings in the marketplaces, and they love being called rabbi, rabbi, rabbi by others. You may have come across the musical Fiddler on the Roof um, with, with Tevye in, uh, in, in Russia some hundred or so years ago. And Tevye, of course, is Jewish, and he has that famous song, If I Were a Rich Man, and all the rest of it. And he says, uh, oh, if I could be uh, in the synagogue and discuss the learned books and have everyone saying, oh, Rabbi Tevye, Rabbi Tevye, oh, to be honoured like that, that would be the most wonderful thing of all. Oh, that's my ambition, to be honoured and exalted. But Jesus says, you don't understand. If that's what you want, you're not a disciple of Jesus Christ. Because he goes on to say to them in verse 8, but you are not to be called Rabbi. For you have one teacher, who is Jesus, And you are all brothers. And call no man on earth your father. For you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. In the kingdom of God, greatness is service. And service is greatness. And what Jesus means above all, as we've said already, is a heart and an attitude of service. The emphasis is more on attitude than it is on actions. Why do I say that? Because our capacity to do things as members of this church, if we are members here, which I trust most of us are, our capacity to do things varies a great deal. Some can take on more, some take on less. People have different levels of ability and areas where they can serve. But the key thing is the attitude of service, which says, I am willing to be a servant. And it's a spirit in this. And it's a spirit that does not seek to be noticed, does not seek to be applauded, does not seek to be told how well we are doing. It's not the servile spirit of the prodigal son's elder brother who says to his father, look, I've been slaving for you all these years and you've not noticed me or rewarded me. Why don't you give me something for all my hard work? I'm entitled to something. You see, the Pharisees, they did everything to be seen by people. But the faithful servant of Christ just doesn't give any thought to how much or how little he or she is seen. And that's the whole spirit of the New Testament, isn't it? 
Colossians 3, 22 and 23, Paul says this to servants. When we say servants, we could mean employees, we could mean those in school, we could mean those who assist in any way at all, in any sphere of life. And he says, when you serve, don't serve by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord, and not for men. Whatever you do, work from the heart. Focus on your attitude, on what you need to do, and to do it well to the best of your ability, and to do it humbly without drawing attention to yourself. I remember a number of years ago, I worked in Vision Express during a uh, holiday period as a student. It was a horrible job. I had to grind and polish lenses for glasses on these machines. And these plastic and glass lenses had very sharp edges, as you can imagine. And I'd come home each day with little cuts all over my hands from the sharp edges of these lenses. But I remember that we were told we had to make sure that they were all turned round in one hour. There was a one-hour window in which you had to get an order done. And I can remember some of the guys who were there really kind of doing this all the time and hands going up and legs going out and moving around and heads bobbing around. Oh, look at how hard I'm working. And it didn't actually help them get the job done. They were doing it to be seen by people. And, you know, you don't have to be waving your arms around furiously to be actually working from the heart, do you? That's the point here. Servanthood. Service. It's very honourable. We talk about the National Health Service. We talk about the Civil Service. The Armed Services. The Police Service. Many of you here are employed in one form or another as public servants. I am a servant of God in this congregation. And you and I are all servants together. And it is an attitude and an idea that our society desperately needs to relearn the honour and dignity of servanthood. Maybe you serve by hanging out clothes to dry and you think, that's not really up to much, is it? That's drudgery, that's menial, that's like washing the disciples' feet. It's, it's dull, it's not glamorous, it's unrewarding, it's just got to be done. <sighs> I have to do this though, don't I? And if you and I had a biblical and Christian idea of servanthood, and there are things that we all have to do at every stage of our lives that we don't necessarily find very, very exciting... But the fact that we are serving the Lord and not men means that that servanthood is honourable and worthy and dignified. There is a quiet, peaceable, contented beauty about a spirit of genuine service seen in any of the Lord's servants. That takes me on to the greatest lesson of all. Christ himself is the great servant, isn't he? The Lord Jesus Christ is the true servant. 
the one who actually defines servanthood. And in the book of Isaiah, in the Old Testament, Jesus is the one who is called by God, my servant. And that is an honored and exalted title. It's not a lowly title. It's not a dismissive title. For the one who is servant is Lord at the same time. There is no contradiction between the lordship of the Lord Jesus and the servanthood of Jesus, the servant of the Lord. I will even say this. His greatest greatness as your Lord and mine is seen in his servanthood. And through his servanthood, he becomes our Lord. It was said of the greatest generals of world history, the great men like Julius Caesar and Napoleon Bonaparte. These men were great. Why? Because they would never ever ask any of their men to do something that they themselves were unwilling or too cowardly to actually do. They would exemplify the hardest, toughest, most dangerous things that they asked the soldiers under them to carry out. And when Jesus talks about his disciples being servants of all, he doesn't say, as we often do, do as I say, not as I do. Do as I say, not as I do. No, he says, do as I say and watch me do it. And how do we see him do it? We thought with the children about Jesus washing his disciples' feet, didn't we? That's in John chapter 13. And then he says to them, when he's done that, he says to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. And interestingly, though Jesus is servant, that does not mean that he becomes the doormat for the disciples. And neither should we treat those who are leaders as doormats in any shape or form, in any particular arena. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. But of course, it gets better than this, doesn't it? How else does Jesus demonstrate and model servanthood? And here in verse 45, we have that supreme, unique, gracious demonstration of the servanthood of Jesus. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. If any being, if any individual, if any person in heaven or earth had the right and the privilege and the authority to say, I intend to be served by all my creatures all the time, 
and to sit while they scurry around me and fan my face and feed me grapes and pour out my wine and wash my feet and make my bed and put toothpaste on my toothbrush and all the rest of it, well, wouldn't it have been the Lord Jesus himself? Yes, the Son of God, God of God, true light of true light, eternal, co-equal with the Father. He could have come into this world. He could, if he'd chosen, have said from the very crib in the manger in Bethlehem, opened his mouth and said, Mary, mother, from now you're going to be my servant and you're going to wash me and clothe me and you're going to carry me on a purple cushion around Jerusalem and proclaim me as king. You're going to wrap me up in cotton wool every night. When I'm older, you're going to give me a robe and a crown and a scepter and an orb and a golden carriage and a fleet of Mercedes and holidays in Barbados and all the rest of it. And I demand that and I deserve to demand that. I must have that. And he could have insisted on all of those things. Couldn't he? Couldn't he? But he didn't. But he didn't. It's just so breathtaking in John chapter 13 where it says, Jesus, knowing that he had completed his work and was leaving this world and was going back to the Father, Jesus, knowing that he was about to leave this world and go back to the Father, rose from the table and, and, you might expect, of course, well, and, and he found himself a crown And he crowned himself and he made himself a throne and said, now worship me, now look at me. But he didn't do that. It wasn't the crown. It was these things instead. It was the towel and it was the basin, wasn't it? And even that is only a picture of what he's going to do the next day. The Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is one of the great texts of the whole Bible. It's one of the greatest summaries of the gospel. It's like a huge great mountain rising above other texts. The one who is the greatest is the one who served the most. The one who is the greatest is the one who gave the most. The one who is the greatest is the one who loved the most. No greater act of service has ever been given by anyone than this, the self-giving of the Son of God, who loved many and gave himself for many. Eternal God becomes the Lamb of God becomes the substitute for sin, becomes the bloodied sin offering on the altar of the wrath of God, who by his death, who by his self-sacrifice, takes away the sin of the world and can take away your sin and mine now and forever. By his blood, by his death on the cross, and by that one death alone, the righteous for the unrighteous, Jesus Christ ransoms our souls, ransoms our bodies, ransoms our lives, now and forever. you imagine for a moment? Do you ever get excited when letters come through the post box? I do. 
And then I think, oh, it's just a bill, or it's just another statement from the bank, or it's just something I'm going to file in the um, recycling bag, or whatever it might be. I don't really need that. But you know, every now and then you think, oh, wouldn't it be exciting if there was a really lovely letter from somebody and offering me something, making an offer to me? What would be the most wonderful way that somebody could make an offer to me, could serve me in some way? Oh, what would I like? Mm, what would I like? Yes, I'd, I'd love to have a, you know, a, a, a day out at Lord's or Wembley or Wimbledon and be looked after for a day or a week and go to Australia and sit in the Melbourne cricket ground for the whole of the Ashes Test match in 2022, whenever the next one is, and you know, watch it all from some hospitality box or... Oh, no, more than that, I'd, I'd love somebody to just, you know, bequeath me something of great fortune I could have, or leave me something, and serve me in some way. Oh, there's so many things I'd love to be done for me, if only it, you could dream great dreams, can't you? What's the greatest thing that can be done for you? What's the greatest thing that can be done for you? Do you know the answer? It's that you should be given a new heart, a new mind, a new name, a new future, a new destiny, a new life. Be made new. Have the old, selfish, sinful, rotten, polluted, guilty self, the sin the ugly desire, the lust, the greed, the anger, the self-pity, all the horrible, vile things inside you to be rooted out. And a new heart put in instead. And a new future. A new destiny. A new eternity. With God. Forever. Sins forgiven. Guilt removed. No condemnation. And to be with God and with all his people without interruption, without sadness, without sorrow, without suffering. And along comes this king and he says to you, I give you all this. I give you all this. I gave my body, I gave my soul, I gave my flesh, I gave my blood to give you all things. I give it to you for free. I ask for no payment. Come and buy without money, without price. This is yours if you trust in Jesus. It's yours. You don't have to change and become better to earn this. You don't have to start coming to this church for a number of weeks and pass an exam and look as if you're the part and somebody says, oh, I think you've deserved now to, uh, to become a Christian. No. Who deserves to become a Christian? Jesus Christ came for sinners. Martin Luther once said, I believe, whenever Satan, whenever the devil tells me that I'm a sinner, I thank God and say, yes, thank you for reminding me that because Jesus came to die for sinners. If you don't think you're a sinner, you're in a very bad place. If you think you're doing well in yourself, you're in a very bad place. But if you know you're a sinner, you couldn't be in a better place. As long as you see that Jesus came for you, 
He came to serve you, to love you, to wash you clean. So as we close, we could say, James, John, just stop talking please, James and John, about what you're after, about what you want, about how great you think you are, about all the service you would like to receive. Unlearn everything you've ever, ever learned in your little lives about what you think it means to be great. And learn a new kind of greatness. A greatness that is from another world. Do you remember how a couple of weeks ago we, we thought about that? We thought about how the love of God from 1 John chapter 3 the bicentenary service. The love of God is from another planet, from another world, from another realm. Here is the love of God in Jesus. It's from another, another place other than this world that we're so used to. There's a greatness here which bows and stoops and humbles and serves and gives and dies to make you and me alive again, really alive more alive than ever before. And it's a love that wins our hearts. It's a love that remodels and refashions our hearts, isn't it? It transforms them from stony, selfish, I'm doing it my way, I want things done my way hearts, to a heart that is a heart of flesh, a warm, pulsating servant heart that says, Lord, I am ready to serve you. I'm ready to do what you want me to do. I hold on to no rights and no sense of entitlement. But let my heart be a copy of yours, Lord Jesus. Jesus says to James and John, doesn't he? You notice this. This is my final observation. He says in verse 39, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. And he's making a prophecy there, actually. He's saying, James and John, you will know something of what I know in very different ways. What happened to James? James didn't live very long after the resurrection of Jesus, not all that long. King Herod had him put to death by the sword. He tasted the cup that Jesus drank. And John lived out his long years, but at the end of it he was in Patmos, in captivity. He knew what prison was like, and suffering and persecution mentioned here in this passage. Do you, are you, and I, willing to drink the cup that Jesus drank, to be counted as servants of God? Because Jesus shows us that servanthood is greatness. And greatness is servanthood. Let's all be servants to the great servant and to one another. Before we continue to think about one or two of these things, we're going to sing.